You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. forefront. Uh, Good to see you all here on this cold day. Thanks for braving this nasty weather. Uh, I am Reverend Josh Lee. I serve as one of the co-pastors here over teaching and community, and we are halfway through our series called Bible Say What? And this week, I would hope that um, our hearts and our minds would be open as they have been as we've journeyed through this series to sort of hear a different vision or see, I should say, see a different vision and and hear a new vision of what um, uh, the scriptures can be when we come to them. I once heard a story of a little girl who was singing this song that she had heard many times before in children's church, and maybe some of you know this song. It's, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. You know that song? It sounded like a few of you did. You knew it, like, not boldly, because you weren't singing it out, but you were like, yeah, you you, you murmured your way through it. But as this little girl was singing this familiar song, there was a moment when she had sung this song that she had sung many times before that she paused and she said, but dad, they forgot about purple. You know, something had happened in this little girl's development that she had learned that, that all were welcome at the table, right? This is what I would imagine, what I would assume, that, that all, that Jesus loves all, and that all are welcome at church, and that God embraces everyone. And at some point, as she began to sing this song, as a familiar song, she began to realize that maybe not all were actually included in this song that talked about God's love. Purple was missing. Now, there are problematic things about this song, one being that no one actually is the colors that this song uh, says, and there are many other things we could talk about, but let us focus this morning on on the observations that I think this woman and this little girl, I should say, calls us to, to be able to see things that maybe we've missed before, to understand things that maybe we didn't understand before. In this series, my hope and my desire would be that we would see the colors that are missing. We would have a more clear vision of this faith that we ascribe to, that we follow. That we may have a new understanding with new questions and the same spirit of wonder and curiosity of a child. If you spend any amount of time with a child, you'll know that there are no questions that are off, off, uh, off limits for a child, right? It is just a spirit of constant questions and curiosity and wonder. And they're, they're developing and they're growing. And there does come some point, though, it seems, as adults when we're sort of told, like, stop asking questions. Stop wondering. Stop being curious. But I think that that is one of the greatest injustices of our time because it's in that that our society and our hearts and our minds and our faith has the capacity to grow. So my heart is that we would do as Jesus said and to be able to have the faith of a child. This morning I would love for us to take a moment and look at this story. It's probably a familiar story for many of us. Um, It's a story of when the Israelites escape from the oppression of the Egyptians They had spent over 400 years in slavery. Some of you know the story well. After 430 years in slavery, uh, forced by the Egyptians, they start growing in numbers. And we all know um, that whenever those who are in power 
begin to be outnumbered and they view that as a threat, they begin to put policies and beliefs and procedures in place to squander the numbers of those who they fear might rise up against them. And so Pharaoh, knowing that, that the Egyptians were, I mean, that the Israelites were growing in numbers, the, Pharaoh decided that he did not want them to overpopulate, so he put an edict out that all of the firstborn children would be killed. So all the firstborn children of the Israelites were to be killed. But there were two people that we often don't know their names. And this is a whole other sermon um, in and of itself. And it's Shipra and Pua. Shipra and Pua. They're two midwife women who completely defy. They completely defy the Pharaoh's orders to go and to kill these firstborn children as they are born. And, and, and in result of defying the orders of the powers that be, they save hundreds of babies from dying. One of those little babies is Moses. And Moses' mother takes Moses and places him into a basket, puts him into the Nile, and the Pharaoh's daughter later finds Moses and raises, her as, raises him as her own. But as Moses gets older and he's raised in this sort of like um, uh, mixed race home, he begins to realize, like, I don't quite look and fit and belong with the rest of the people. I don't quite align with them and all these things. I don't know if I actually belong here and who are my people. And he begins to question his identity and his place in the world. In the midst of questioning this as an adult, he sees one day an Egyptian beating up and abusing and attacking and causing great harm to an Israelite. And something wellows up in him with deep anger. This should not be happening. This is not okay. And so in anger, he fights back and he kills this Egyptian he then goes in this deep inward journey where he doesn't know what to do with what just happened. These were, this was very different than how he had been taught and raised and thought to believe and live in the world. And he enacted this act of violence against someone who was already enacting an act of violence against a group of people who he looked like but that he didn't grow up with. And so he goes off by himself into the wilderness for a time of contemplation. And in that space, God meets him, right? You know the story of the burning bush? God calls Moses to do something beautiful, something great, to go and to, and to free his people. But he's an underdog. I mean, he's got his like, speech impediment, and, and, and there's, there's all these rumors and these questions about who he is and who has his allegiance back in the homeland. So how, how could he go back and free his people? But, but he does, and he begins to, to lobby and fight and debate with Pharaoh about freeing the Israelites. And after a series of plagues, and we don't really know, depending on maybe what way you interpret Scripture, some people think the plagues were literal. Some people think the plagues were a sort of a parable, examples of, of ways in which uh, natural disasters and things were occurring that were making, making Pharaoh think that maybe the gods were not blessing them. Some people think that the plagues happened over a span of a few days or weeks. Other people have, think they happened over long periods of time that finally caused Pharaoh to fold, similar to like, was it seven days of creation or seven periods of creation? We, we don't really know. Uh, the, the debates around these things, right? But reality is, is something moves Pharaoh to the point where he's, he's stripped of all of his power and privilege enough that he's like, okay, fine, just leave because I've lost enough that this is no longer worth it. But then they leave, right? And he realizes, actually, this wasn't a good idea. I actually probably lost more power and privilege by letting them go. Bring them back. And then we pick up this story in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. It says, The people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. In fact, it was on the last day of the 430th year that all the Lord's people left the land. On this night, the Lord kept his promise to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. 
So that this, this night belongs to him, and he must be commemorated every year by all the Israelites from generation to generation, which is Passover, and we'll talk more about Passover as we come upon it here in the, the Lenten season. See, the reality, of this unfortunately would only be the first time, though, for the Israelites that they would find themselves enslaved and in need of being free. They had been enslaved for over 430 years. But over the span of our book that we read in the Bible, both the Hebrew Bible as well as the New Testament, over the span of history, they would continually be in and out of slavery and oppression. They would continually find themselves as the underdogs, as the person whose thumb was being pressed down upon. It was both by the Persians, then by the Babylonians, and then by the Assyrians, and then by the Greeks, and then by the time that Jesus arrives by the Romans constantly finding themselves in this place of oppression, constantly finding themselves. And, and so no wonder by the time Jesus shows up, what are, what, what are they like? Please, please give us a Messiah. Give us somebody who can rise up and, and be this superpower because we seem to not be powerful enough to ever overcome all of these other people who continually seem to come into our land and to conquer us and to take us and drag us off to these foreign places and use their power to cause us even greater harm. So please, send us somebody to take care of this. And so no wonder they're greatly confused when Jesus, who is born into a simple carpenter's family from Galilee, who clears to not have very much money, power, and not born into any royalty or, or privilege, how is this person, seriously, after thousands of years of oppression and being overthrown and being oppressed, this guy, says he's going to take care of it. <laughs> and so no wonder they were confused. No wonder they couldn't understand. No wonder they just wanted a superpower to end this nightmare. So why am I telling you this? Because our Bible wasn't written by the military superpower of their day. Our Bible wasn't written by the Persians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Greeks or the Romans. Our Bible was written by the underdog by the one who was continually oppressed, by the one who was continually trying to fight for liberation, for their voice, for their place. Our Bible was written by those who were poor and weak and marginalized. And yes, there were periods of time throughout Scripture when the Israelites would finally find themselves like not under the oppressive power and natures of other people. But even in those times, most of the writings that we have in our Bible... They are of the 17 prophets criticizing those kings and leaders and saying, whoa, 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 don't you become like your oppressors. Don't you forget the weak and the poor. This is why it is said, may justice flow down like waters in the book of Amos. Just one of many examples in all of these 17 prophets in the Hebrew Bible who are, who are calling them to be better than those who had oppressed them. And then often, when we look back in the history books and in the, in, the, in the prophetic books, remember this. These books were never written like real time. They weren't like a diary or something like that. It was always looking back upon history. And they were always trying to make sense of, how did we get to this place again where we are being oppressed by another group? How did we get to this place again where we've been overcome and our land has been taken and we've been dragged into slavery again? How is it that we are the underdogs again? They're always asking this question. And, the, and when they ask this question, they always run back to, well, perhaps it was because we too lost sight of what was important. Perhaps it was because we too forgot the poor and the weak and the marginalized. Now, was that really the reason? We always try to make sense of our suffering. 
And that's exactly what they were doing, trying to make sense of why does this keep happening to us. I don't think God punishes or is punitive like that. I think sometimes we reap what we sow. As Jennifer shared a few weeks ago in her sermon, So I want us to posture ourselves with the reality that this book that we read, it is written by the underdog. It is not written by the superpower. And how does that change the way we read the text? How does that change the way we understand the story and the rich legacy and history that we have been grafted into? Well, Rob Bell says this. He says, History is usually told by the strong, who with great flourish tell you all about all that they conquered and all the brave acts that they did. The Bible is different. The Bible writers relentlessly critique those kind of stories. Well, so what, what themes do you think could easily be missed if reading the text from a place of power and privilege only? What themes do you think we might miss or reconstruct major themes of Scripture if, if you don't understand what it's like to need to be set free? If you don't come to the text with the need of freedom or liberation or for God to supply or provide. If you come to the text as one with only power and privilege, what might you miss? Because most of what we've seen interpreted throughout Scripture was not by the weak and the powerless and the underdog. Most of how the Scriptures and the theology that many people embody throughout the world today was often interpreted by the privileged, by the powerful, by the rich, by the resourced, by the ones who had enough to go to school the ones to have letters behind their names to say, you should listen to me and my interpretation of this because of where I come from. Reality is, reality is, that only great pain, I think, often comes when we do that. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 4, and, and, and in Isaiah, quoting Isaiah 61, that whole, the whole reason Jesus came was what? He came to set the captive free, to give good news to the poor, And to give sight to the blind. So what happens if you don't feel like you fit into any of those categories? Perhaps, I wonder, and we'll explore this more in the text today, what if give sight to the blind doesn't have anything to do with actually being blind? Perhaps it's not a physical blindness. Perhaps the call is to give sight to those of us who are blind to the injustices that we see all around us. Who are blind to how our power or our inaction is causing great pain and suffering. And perhaps we are blind to the fact that how that holds us captive. Perhaps Jesus came to both open our eyes and set us free, even if we can't see it, but we need to. Jesus was also one who was weak, right? Jesus was one who didn't just place him in self and solidarity with the weak, but was weak himself, for he did not have powers and privileges to lean upon. And thus why he was persecuted and said we too would be persecuted. I had planned to say this, but I was thinking about this as I was getting ready to come up. And um, it's fascinating to me growing up in, in white evangelicalism how you know, they, would, they would always quote the passages that said that if you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. But oftentimes, us white evangelicals weren't really persecuted. We were, we were the dominant superpower, at least when I was growing up. I know that's somewhat changing a little bit in our country now, but it still has a huge force of strength politically in our country. And I've, I've, I've thought about this a lot, and, and one of the things I wrestled with was when, when you're not being persecuted, but the scriptures you read say that you're supposed to be persecuted for following Jesus, you come up with crazy crap. 
to convince yourself that you're being persecuted. Because if you're not being persecuted, then you must be doing something wrong. So then you begin to make up certain narratives, that there's certain things and certain stances and beliefs that you have that you're being persecuted for that. And really those certain stances and ideas and circumstances are actually the things that are persecuting other people. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we may see. So what happens if you don't find yourself in a weak place? You come up with your own persecutions. You create your own narratives. But I think you also miss what God is trying to say often in the text. What happens if today, if you are one of the 22 million individuals residing in the United States who belong to the global 1% of the wealth in the world worldwide? Well, first, I hope that you would get the forefront. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but also, I, I also hope that you would realize that like, just because you reside in this country, there, there's a sense of privilege that you have globally that it's often easy for us to forget because we often turn on the news and the only thing we see is right here as if we are the center of the universe. Perhaps we are just the center of our own universe. But second, I think that it's easy for us to miss these things uh, and what the scriptures are telling us when we don't see ourselves in the narrative of scripture as one who needs to be set free or, or is held captive or as, or as one who needs their sight to be vision and, and their minds to be widened. Perhaps Jesus came to both set the captives free and open our eyes. Open our eyes to the injustices of police brutality and racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia. But more than that, to also open our eyes to capitalism and the belief that, that, that more will make us happier, that more will help us arrive, that more land and more expansion and more wealth and more influence and more customers and more square footage and more power, that isn't God's dream, that's American dream, and we often mix those two up. The idea and the belief that more and more and more is better. Sometimes maybe we need our eyes to be open to realize that God has provided, that, you know that passage that says that God will provide for the lilies of the field and the birds in the sky? I've always struggled with that because I know people who are starving. And there are people, parts of the world, who, who, who would have to walk days to get access to water. And I'm like, well, it doesn't feel like God's providing there. But then I stop and I remember, no, God has provided all that we need in this earth. But humans have hoarded those resources instead of, instead of, instead of equally, go ahead. Let us clap, but let us also do something about that, right? Because there's, there's this reality is that we've hoarded, God has provided all that we need, but because of the theory and the belief of more, more, more at the beginning of a pandemic, we hoard all the toilet paper. There was plenty of toilet paper. <laughs> But because we had to more and more and more and I need it just in case if I don't run out of it, you know, or I have really bad diarrhea, like, then I'm like, I'm set, you know, what will I do? Maybe you just use something and wash it. I don't know, like, it's going to be fine. But all of a sudden the price goes up for everything and now people can't afford it. Reality is, is the belief and the thought that, that more and more will get us there, will make us happy, will help us feel secure and safe. It ain't going to do it, honeys. And the scriptures, when we come to the text with the mindset of that, perhaps they would open our eyes to see the text in a new way.
God is speaking to us from the pages of Scripture from a people whose land was stolen from them and who never felt secure in their land no matter how long they had lived there or been there for the threat and the realization that at any moment it could be taken from them. God is speaking to us through the scriptures, through bodies who had been transported from foreign lands as slave labor for thousands of generations. God is speaking to us from the scriptures, from our ancient ancestors, from folks who had access to wealth and influence, but that was managed by those in power. God is speaking to us in our ancient scriptures from people who had continually had to fight for a voice and power and place in the world. This is what, who our book is penned by. This is who our book is written by. Perhaps Jesus came to give sight to some of our blind eyes so that we can see the color purple missing in the world, missing at our tables, missing in our churches, missing in our justice system, missing in our government, missing in positions of power. Perhaps Jesus came to give us sight to see these things. Where is the purple missing? Why do some of us often miss major themes in the Bible? It is because the book was written by the underdog, not the world's superpower. It's a really beautiful image when you think about the story of the Israelites and you think about how it's been interpreted by different people groups and different, who are, find themselves in different social locations throughout history. But what I find most fascinating about this story and most insightful about this story is, that, uh, is, is the translation of this story through black liberation theology. The translation of this story through black liberation theology, since the 17th century, black people were kidnapped in this country from the continent of Africa, and they've been reading the story of the Israelites, either being reading or hearing it read to them or passed down orally, and they have been identifying with the people of Israel. And the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and the oppression, they've been reading this story, and they've been finding hope in it that God could strengthen them that God could deliver them, that God could pull them through. The late Reverend James Cohn, who died in 2018, taught right here at Union Theological in New York City. He invented black liberation theology. Now, what is black liberation theology? Well, let Dr. Cohn tell you himself. He says black liberation theology is a theology that sees God as concerned with the poor and the weak in society. It is for black people as it is focused on the concerns of black people who are living voiceless in this society. If you're concerned for the poor and the weak, then you are concerned for black people too. God sides with those who are voiceless and weak, and he is empowering them to know that they were not made for slavery or exploitation, but for freedom. Cohn, he decided that black liberation theology should be, would be informed by two different people, Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Dr. Martin Luther King said, you need to love your enemy. Malcolm X said, you need to love yourself. And the reality is that Dr. Cohn unpacks is that, unfortunately, the worst crime that white man has committed has been to teach us to hate ourselves, is what Malcolm X says. This is precisely what we saw happen with Tyree Nichols. And so black liberation theology says you can't just say love your enemy. You got to go a step further. You got to say you got to love yourself because you'll never be able to love your enemy. You'll never be able to love if you can't love the very people who look like you. And so the work of black liberation theology and the work that I think Jesus caught when he said love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself was that this puts some flesh on it. This puts some feet on it. 
This gives you a steering wheel, and this says, yes, it will not work. Because when you live in a system and in a world where you've been taught to believe that you are less than, watching the, 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 the 1619 Project, hearing about how slaves, or people who were enslaved, never call someone a slave. That's not who they are. It's not their identity. Something I'm having to continually unpack and change, as you just heard out of my mouth. People who were enslaved. That there were, they've been discovering these books of uh, how much worth and how much work they had done. And often, those who were enslaved knew what the master over them had written about their worth and how much they were worth or how much they were traded at. And so much of their identity was tied to that. And I can't help but hear and see the story of the Israelites wandering through the desert going, maybe I should just go back. Maybe it's better there for us. They had been taught not to love themselves and that they, that was all that they were worth or worthy of for hundreds of generations as, they, as generations served the Egyptians. And it says, we, so we, as we sit in the midst of Black History Month, and as we sit in the midst of trying to understand this ancient text that we have been following for so long that can give us life, may we also lean upon those who can read the text and see things that we may never see in our places of power and privilege. Who better, who better to interpret the story of the Israelites? than Dr. James Cone and Black Liberation Theology. Who better to interpret the story of our ancient scriptures in our Bible than those who have lived it in our modern day? Who better? May we open our eyes and our ears that we may lean upon those who are speaking truth to us. And may we listen to voices that maybe we hadn't listened to before. May we see people who we hadn't quite seen before. Albert Tate says, white people often see God as conqueror and black people often see God as liberator. And when you come to the text and realize that the, if you're all, the only voices you're listening to interpreting a sermon or a text is only those who see God as conqueror, maybe, maybe, maybe you don't have the full story. This is one of the reasons why here at Forefront we, we try to have a diverse staff and, and group of preaching boot camp teaching, but also uh, that we try to make sure that we're drawing from diverse voices when we're interpreting the passages. Because when you have one vision, when you have one set of eyes on one thing, I believe it clouds your vision. Two books I want to recommend to you that I want you to read in order to open your eyes to do what Jesus called us to do, to give us new vision. And these are two books written by James Cone. I encourage you to take a picture, open these books up, read them. They may expand your understanding of who God is. The cross and the lynching tree is an interesting way to understand uh, the, the crucifixion and the death and resurrection of Jesus from a way that isn't just from a white conqueror's perspective, which is often the way in which we understand Jesus' death in modern-day Western Christianity. Let me lay on this plane because I'm about over time. The exodus of the Israelites over Egypt from bondage is an invitation to us to also realize that we sit upon the shoulders of a people who have always been the underdog and who write to us as underdogs, learning to love themselves in order to better love other people as well. Brene Brown says, empathy doesn't require that we have the exact same experience as the person sharing their story with us. Empathy is connected with the emotion that someone is experiencing, not the event or the circumstance. So church, this is my invitation to you 
as we wrap up this message. As you read scripture, remember this. There are many different stories throughout scripture, and there are many different stories in this church. And you may share in some or you may share in none of the experiences of our ancient ancestors or the people in this church. But regardless of that, may the Spirit open your eyes, your blind eyes, and give you a spirit of empathy. Whether we share experiences or not, may our eyes be open. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we may see ourselves as ones who are both worthy to be loved And then for others of us, may we also see the shades of purple and include them in the unending song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him below, we are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. May it be true. God, may you open our eyes that we may see the truths this ancient text. Truths of this ancient text. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.